voices in unity this morning to a God who was, who is, who is, is to come. He is good. He is awesome. He is holy and so worthy of our praise. All right, let's sing together. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who Yeah. 
Cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree.
kind of chuckling to myself because I just, there, there's times I've, God has just kind of reminded me, there's a lot of times I shout to the Lord. It's not always for the right reasons. <laughs> I don't think I'm alone in that. You understand, right? We, we get to these moments in life where we can be frustrated or discouraged or tired or weary, and we just want to shout to the Lord. And you know, God in His goodness and His faithfulness and His graciousness, He, he meets us right where we're at, and has a way of turning those shouts around eventually turning them into what they're intended to be praises so i just pray that today as we come before him our shouts to god for good reasons for good because of the good news the good things that he does the praiseworthy deeds of the lord in psalms we read we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the lord and we're going to talk about telling today and speaking out those testimonies of, of faith in our lives where god has shown up taking those not-so-good shouts and turn them into something beautiful. As we go to prayer today, that's my prayer, is that God would remind us, show us, continue to be faithful to us and, and, and make clear to us those praiseworthy moments. Even in the not-so-good moments, there's reasons and opportunities for us to give Him praise. So as we pray today, might we shout to the Lord for different reasons? Because He's listening and He hears us. May he speak to us. May we hear from him. We have a conversation with him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, it's even hard for me to begin speaking, Lord. I get it. I'm humbled. How quick I am to come to you with my shouts of dissatisfaction or of discontent or, or of, of, of misunderstanding or of wondering or, or of lack of faith. And we pray as Jesus taught us, how quickly, Lord, you turn those shouts around. This morning, Lord, we come before you and we hallow your name. We lift you up. And as we lift up your name, God, we're reminded of the things that you do every day for us. Of the times in our lives where you've shown up and met us in the deepest valleys. You've walked with us, Lord, through storms through the fog, through uncertain times, through painful times. God, we can and should praise you. We then, God, turn our attention to the things that you would desire for us. We pray, Lord, for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. And Lord, that in itself is a bold prayer. That's a prayer of release, of submission, of letting go. And Lord, we do pray for your will to be done in our lives in this place this morning as we've gathered to worship you. Perhaps we've come for different reasons, different motivations. Or at the end of the day, we are in your house. We've, we've come, Lord, and we are the worshipers. You are the audience. But Father, we do pray that you would speak to us. We would be slow to speak, quick to listen. We would hear your voice. Pray, Father, your spirit would move among us. Lord, as, as we've prayed for your will to be done, we, we, we've let go of, of the things that we want and desire. Lord, we create space for you to step into. We want to hear your voice. That's not to say, God, you don't allow space and time for us to pour out our hearts. That's the attractive part of you. We can come just as we are. There's things in our life that we need, and we're encouraged to pray for our daily bread, for provision, Lord, and you do meet those needs. And not only do you meet our needs, Lord, you provide for many of our wants. We pray, Lord, for those that perhaps we've wronged, for the broken relationships in our lives, those that have wronged us. And as, Lord, as we seek forgiveness, we also are people who forgive. Meet with us, God, right where we're at. Some, Lord, I know have come and have, have good, praiseworthy weeks, can look and see you and, and the involvement of, uh, as, as you've walked with them in their lives, and Lord, we give you thanks. Brothers, God, have struggled. Many in this place today, Lord, are dealing with loss, dealing with confusion, uncertainty, are waiting, God, upon you. A dear friend once told me years ago, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hold on. Lord, in the waiting, today we do just that. What better place for us to wait? In this place, in your house, in your presence. 
Have your way among us, Lord, this morning. Speak to us, God, I pray. Remind us, Lord, of our stories. Lord, we'll continue to live our lives in such a way that brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, we shout to the Lord this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We are glad you've chosen to worship with us today. This first day of October, it kind of even hurts to say that, but all right, isn't God great? He's going to give us another week in the 80s in October, and I, I'm kind of, personally, I'm glad for that. I, I do kind of like the, the chilly mornings and evenings. It's kind of a nice time of, of just looking at what's next. Uh, my son, who's five years old this week, is really getting into the spirit. He wants me to go buy a tree because we don't have enough leaves for him to jump in. So he thinks if I can go buy a tree that he can have leaves to jump in. doesn't quite work that way, but I appreciate just uh, his, his heart and his spirit. He's, he's watching the leaves turn. He knows what season we're entering into, and he's looking forward to jumping in someone's leaves. So I've already talked to one family today. If you've got leaves, my five-year-old could jump in. You let me know. Uh, we just don't rake them back up when we're done, so just be aware of that. We'd be glad to come jump in your leaves, but, you know, I'm just kidding. He needs to learn that there's a little bit of work sometimes involved with fun as well. But with this season, you may have noticed the fields are starting to uh, turn, if you will, getting ready for the harvest. Uh, we, we've seen the farmers around us this, this spring and summer at work. Now we get to this place where they're about to bring in uh, the, the harvest from all of, of their toil, all of their efforts. And we've, we've had an interesting year. We've had a lot of rain through the early parts of the summer, a little dry towards the end. But we've seen some pretty full fields. And I enjoy this time watching the harvest come in. There's also a spiritual harvest. God has been working. We've been toiling in the dirt, if you will. We've been kind of doing the dirty work, getting ready for the harvest that God has before us as his church. This is not a new conversation. We, we started dirty work, this dialogue in the spring, where it, it, we talked about how it involves preparing the soil or preparing our hearts, uh, of, of planting spiritual seeds, of watering, of pulling weeds throughout the, the, the growth process. Our early conversation helped shape our personal approach to sharing the good news of Jesus in natural and organic ways just throughout our daily lives, looking at opportunities that the Holy Spirit presents to us. But in that, we recognize that there's practical and messy parts, often in putting our faith into action. It's not always easy. It can be intimidating. But the beautiful part of all of that is that we're not asked to ever do it alone. The Holy Spirit always goes before us, and always is there with us in the moments where the rubber meets the road, or when the plow meets the dirt, or when the, the combine finally comes to meet and collect the harvest. So we often fail to recognize that, as, 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 and we talked about this last week, that the Holy Spirit's work in the process, we just think the Holy Spirit's part of the process. The reality is the Holy Spirit's in overseeing and is in charge of the process. We're just part of the process. And when we approach it as if we're the one who has to do the saving, it's easy for us to get intimidated because the truth is we can't save anybody. We don't have the power. We've, we've not died on the cross. We've not risen from the grave. Only Jesus Christ has done that. God so loved the world, he sent his son to do that. Then Jesus promised us the Holy Spirit to help us along life's journey. We just get to be partners with him as we go through dirty work together. How does the Holy Spirit do this? The Holy Spirit goes in advance. He prepares our hearts as the storyteller. But we then often don't recognize that God's also preparing the hearts of the listener. You have a story to share. You have a testimony that needs to be heard. And we don't trust God at times enough to believe that he can cause us to interact with the very ones who might need to hear it. When we surrender those pieces of, of the harvest puzzle, Going to work in our master's fields becomes so much easier for us. It becomes more desirable for us because it stops being work. It starts being simply an expression of our love and our faith in Christ. The harvest is always Holy Spirit-led. It's always Holy Spirit-sourced. Jesus began his ministry by being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted, to be tested, to be prepared. The Spirit is the one who always leads us and guides us. As we talked about last week, when, when we go where God leads us, we cannot fail. If we're in the middle of his will, doing what he wants us to do, led by the Holy Spirit, church, you cannot fail. 
If there's one thing in life you could do, and you know you could do it and not fail at it, wouldn't we desire to do such that thing? I would hope so. But as God leads us into his fields, and the Holy Spirit goes before us, if we do it with anticipation, as we anticipate the harvest, we can't fail. Well, that doesn't mean others won't say no. And people might reject the story, but to share the story, to be part of, the, the, of bringing in the harvest, is a beautiful thing. So as we begin year two of ministry together, uh, we've been talking about vision, and we've been talking about uh, discovering our purpose. Uh, my hope is that as, as we go through this big picture planning, we'll also recognize that every Sunday, uh, we will come with a reason, with a purpose. And I pray that's driven by deep-rooted questions that we're willing to ask and answer honestly. Do we care about lost people? Church of Jesus Christ was formed so that those who came to a saving knowledge of, of, of grace through Jesus' blood on the cross would come to this forgiving relationship that we find, this reconciliation with God. The church was formed so we could help one another build each other up so we could become disciples. But to truly be a disciple means that we then complete the cycle. We started over and we care about lost people, those who don't yet know Jesus. We hesitate to use the word lost. It kind of gives it a negative connotation, but that is exactly what they are. And we yet know who Jesus is. There is a sense of lostness in their life that we get to step into their stories and help them. In, in what way do we care about lost people? Do we want them to become like us, or do we want them to become like Jesus? I think, of course, the church answers we want them to become like Jesus. But often how that's expressed, how it's manifested in one's church, often is if you just look like we do, then everything will be all right in your life. <laughs> we chuckle at that, don't we? Everything all right in your life? Yeah, mine either. So I understand how that works. Too often we take on the role, we, we think as, as harvest bearers, we think it looks like becoming a gatekeeper. We're not called to be gatekeepers. We're called to be bucket bearers meeting people at the well, being willing to dispense to them living water, helping them grow to become like Jesus. So this month, we're going to talk about practical ways that we can participate in the harvest, so that we can anticipate the harvest before us. There are some structures within our denomination to help us with that. One of them is called faith promise. Faith promise might be a new phrase or an idea to you, but faith promise has been around in the Church of the Nazarene for a long time. It's, it's a method of giving that we're, we're going to introduce in more detail next Sunday. It, it's a gift that we give above and beyond our, our normal tithes and offerings that goes towards what we in our church is called the World Evangelism Fund, we, for WEF or for short. Our World Evangelism Fund, uh, it's kind of like a tithe of sorts that our church pays to our general church. So 5.5%, roughly, of all of, our, uh, of your gifts, we then give back to the Church of the Nazarene. Church of the Nazarene then uses those funds to uh, uh, support missionaries around the world. Church of the Nazarene is in 200 world areas. We have, we have many, or more than that, I believe. We have more missionaries uh, that we also support that are sent around the world. It supports the, the global work of the church and producing of literature and, and the equipping of pastors. And, and all of the, the work that the church does globally, we contribute to that through our World Evangelism Fund. Now, we typically, uh, the idea behind faith promise is that the work of the church that we give to the global church could be paid for by funds above and beyond tithes and offerings. It's not always worked that way. So I've been in churches where it has and somewhere it hasn't. When we don't reach our 5.5% through faith promise, we, we are fortunate to be able to pay for it through all your tithes and offerings. So we, we've been in a healthy place as a church. But the more that we're able to do through our uh, faith promise giving to meet our obligations or opportunities for our World Evangelism Fund, that's more money that we can keep locally and do local ministry here. So we're part of this global harvest, if you will. We're supporting those that are working around the world to, to bring in the harvest, not just the, the harvest that we see in our neighborhoods. So we're involved in this global work. Next Sunday, we have a friend of mine that I've known, I went to college with, named Dwayne Mills. Dwayne is the executive director of Appalachia Reach Out. And uh, it's a ministry started in Turkey Foot, Kentucky. Now it's expanded to West Virginia. Uh, that, that's where my roots are. You remember the Davy Crockett Hoonskin hat a few weeks ago? Which, by the way, if you sent me the book, The Frontiersman, telling the story of Simon Kenton and, and his work here, uh, thank you very much. I haven't had a chance to read that yet, but someone surprised me with a book this week. I'm going to wear my Coonskin hat and read that book and get into character. Very excited what I'm still going to learn. But the frontiersmen, though, they kind of went out in, into an, an unknown world 
to discover and to explore and to see what God might have for them. We have the same opportunity yet today. And just as we are, are going to talk about faith promise and we're going to learn from Dwayne about how we can get involved in Appalachia, reach out, and we have exciting news coming about some opportunities for us next summer. Uh, the harvest is often going to take us into uncomfortable fields. Think about that for a moment. It's going to take us places we wouldn't normally go on our own. It stretches us. It asks something of us. And it, it, it leads us into places that we typically wouldn't go to by choice or without a little bit of prompting. After Dwayne shares with us next week, the following Sunday, Cindy Lee, hopefully you've got a chance to know Cindy, she and her family come second service. Cindy's going to share her story, her testimony, and what God is doing in her life now and where he's leading her. In the next couple weeks, we'll be leading her in, into the, the women's prison here in town and be doing a Kairos ministry. And we'll be talking, you'll have opportunities to get engaged and involved with uh, praying for those that, that God is sending uh, people to. What, what a harvest field that is. But it's one, let's be honest, it's not clean. It's uncomfortable. But God's sending people there because that's where lost people are. They need Jesus. We've been talking about Celebrate Recovery for several months, and I'm excited to say that this coming Saturday, four of us will be going to Canton for an in-person training, starting to really put uh, some, uh, some meat, if you will, to the conversation. And local training will begin very soon. And I recognize for some, we love the idea of Celebrate Recovery, of helping those that are recovering from hurts, habits, and hang-ups, from addictions, and from struggles, from manipulations, from bad relationships. We love that idea until it gets really close to us. Then it's a little more challenging. It, it, it gets, it's not clean. That's what this idea of dirty work's all about, is, is God is leading us to places that are uncomfortable for us. The Holy Spirit's going before us to do things in and through us that we could never do on our own. Church, if, if, we're, if I'm going to be really honest and transparent, and I believe I'm where God wants, I'm exactly where God wants me to be, and, and my family's here, and we're, we're, we are dug in, and we're not going anywhere. I believe that God's going to continue to stretch us and move us and to take us into fields that are uncomfortable. And I know for some, that causes some apprehension, some worry. I get it. If you're a parent and you have young children, you're a grandparent, I, I get that. We want to protect our kids, right? Put good influences around them. I understand that. There was a season years ago, my wife and I, before kids, uh, we were involved in a local outreach ministry of a church we were attending, and we got to be uh, bus drivers, van drivers, if you will, and then they asked us to work with second grade boys, and I remember that first night showing up, Amy was all about working with second grade boys, I wasn't so sure, that was a new harvest field for me, where I was uncomfortable, but we met these boys that just changed our heart, changed my heart, and God used that uncomfortable field to, to lead me to new fields that I never would have pursued had he not introduced me to this idea of, of lost people in such a unique and powerful way. But in that time, I gotta be, I'm going to be transparent with you. We would go to this church on Wednesday nights, and, and we would bus in hundreds of kids, literally. And we'd look at our class of second grade boys, and what a wonderful, beautiful ministry this was. And we would look around our room, and there'd be maybe one kid from this very large church. Thinking, well, where's all the church kids? Why aren't the parents bringing their kids? This is an awesome thing we do on Wednesday nights. And eventually I was given an answer. The parents were hesitant about the influence of bringing their children to hang around the kids that were coming on the buses. I, I, at the time, that bothered me. That really, I didn't understand it. That kind of hurt. But then as a parent, I started to kind of understand a little bit. I still don't think it's necessarily the right thing to do, but I get how sometimes we can choose to go to uncomfortable places, but then we have to recognize that we're also bringing with us families and children and, and those that we're responsible for. There's a balancing act that needs to occur. I acknowledge that. But here's what I know. My God understands that better than I do. He's already at work and, and fixing and, and putting things in place that's going to help those that are lost, but also protect those that are growing in their faith. He's creative enough to figure that out. I'm not going to use that as an excuse not to go in the fields in which he's leading us. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be. That's where hurt people are. That's what lost looks like. But that's where when Jesus is found, some beautiful things begin to happen. We, we've got lost people even in our own community. You do know that, right? <laughs> right we, we know that. 
I think that we do. Th- this coming Friday night, we have an opportunity called Friday Nights Uptown. I- I've had a chance to go a couple of times, and I tell you what, it is beyond the playing of the games. When you get beyond the games and you see the crowd, it really is a fun thing to be a part of. And I know it, it, for some, it, there's an environment there, there's things going on that you may not like or approve of. I get that. That's where you find lost people. That's where you find people that need Jesus. And when you step back and you see the person be, be beyond the game and beyond the prize you're giving away, when you see the child playing the game who comes three or four times to get three or four free prizes, and you look behind them and you see their parents, you begin to realize, hmm, this is the harvest field God's given to us. What are we doing with that? I'm going to be honest for you for just a few moments. In September, we had to cancel our involvement Friday in Uptown. We didn't have enough volunteers. I get there, there, there's schedule conflicts, there's things going on. I understand that. But a church, a, a faith family of our size, we should be able to have enough people that would go and serve. But beyond that, we should have enough people, more than enough people that want to go and to reach those that are lost. Am I wrong? You're kind of quiet. I, I get it. And I know I'm not trying to be a detrimental. I just, I want us to care. Because before we go and do those types of ministries, we have to go right back to the very first question. Do we care about lost people? As God gives us opportunities into our community, what are we going to do with them? How are we going to respond? Lord, not that field. That's not the one for us. And and there might be other things that are better or more effective or more efficient for us to do. And in time, we will seek to discover what those are. But for right now, this is what God's put before us. See, harvest work is dirty work. It's difficult, and it might inconvenience us. But when God leads us into places that the Holy Spirit has gone before us and prepared for us, beautiful things begin to happen. One of the nights that we served, well, here's some things we discovered. Many of the kids showing up to play games went to school with my kids. Instant connection. Some of them were my wife's students. And we got to meet mom and dad in a context outside of school. But not only we just get to meet them, they got to see what we're involved in. Something that's important to us, that we're part of a church or a faith family. That may lead to questions down the road when they go through a life struggle or difficulty, they're going to know that there's more to Mrs. Richardson, there's more to this family than what they be on the surface they might be able to see. It's about investing. It's about making ourselves present and visible. So that when hard times come, when people have questions, they have someone to turn to. See, church, I have some friends that my daughter plays soccer with, and they have what they call a hobby farm. You heard of a hobby farm? People kind of like, I don't I kind of call them pretend farmers. <laughs> I don't know, that's maybe, that's, I don't know if that's really what they are. But faith cannot become a hobby farm. Church can't be a hobby farm. It's not something we kind of play at or, or, or engage with when it's convenient. It's a lifestyle. We are called to be workers. We're not the owners of the field. We're called to be workers that are sent out into our master's fields. Now, I got to tell you, there's been some time in our lives where my wife and we, we've attempted to do a garden. I don't know if we've ever, we have, we think we've had one year where it was what we would call successful. We still have jars in the pantry that would kind of speak to that success, if you will. And we, we talked about last week the different types of soil and the things that happen with a seed thrown here and a seed thrown there. But what I find interesting is scripture leaves out the groundhogs. It doesn't talk about the groundhogs who come and who who dig up the plants and what you're supposed to do in those moments. It doesn't talk about the raccoons who climb the corn stalk and are smart enough to peel back the husk to eat what they want. It doesn't talk about the times I'm supposed to get out my crossbow and to take care of those things that are messing around with my garden. There there should be things in Scripture that aren't always spelled out for us. What we do see, though, is that we're to be cautious. of those elements of our lives that seek to steal the harvest. And we're going to talk today about something that I believe Satan uses prevalently in our lives to steal the harvest. We're going to talk about our words, about what we say, or more importantly, about what we don't say. And we recognize there's tension between words and actions. We know the Scripture tells us that our faith has to be more than words, it's backed up by the things that we do. We've heard the old adage that actions speak louder than words. 
And I believe there are times in our faith journey where actions are easier than words. Where we get to the point where we use our actions as an escape, if you will. An excuse to not have to speak. But I believe as I read scripture, here's what I see. There comes a point in time where we're going to have to say something. And for those of you that are a little bit uh, shy or, or, or introverted, this is terrifying. No, no, and I don't say this flippantly. I don't say this without understanding. I, you've, you've heard, many of you know my story. If you don't know my story, growing up, I was a kid who stuttered. Being and speaking in front of crowds was something that scared me so much that I wouldn't even answer the telephone. I understand what it's like to be someone who just does not want to be in that position. And the only reason I do what I'm doing today, the only reason I'm up here right now doing what I'm doing today is because of the Holy Spirit. That's it. I wouldn't choose this. I, I've had people in my life say, if you could be anything but a pastor, be it. There was a moment in my life where I fully surrendered everything to God. I said, God, you lead the way you want to in my life. And this is where I've ended up. <laughs> and I'm glad for that, by the way. Praise the Lord for it. But there's going to come a point in time, and when actions are a good, beautiful thing, it, it's a God-honoring thing, there is a moment or there will be moments where we have to speak. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is asking his disciples. They're talking about, you know, who does the world say that I am? And they're giving all these different examples of in the world's confusion at this moment of who they think Jesus is. And Jesus pauses and says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And what a great question for us this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's where we begin with our story, with our verbal answer, with our testimony who is Jesus to each one of us? For some, you have an immediate answer. You know how you'd respond. You know what that looks like. For others, you, you've already started in your mind, saying, well, I've got to figure out how to put this in the perfect words in one sentence, and so that everybody it doesn't have to be like that. Who is Jesus to you? If you don't yet know who he is, perhaps he's just some historical figure. He's, some, he's a, a storybook character. He's someone you know a little bit about, but you don't yet quite know him there will become a point or come a point in our life where we have to give an answer who do we say he is luke chapter 19 this is a story of the triumphal entry jesus is kind of riding on the back of a donkey on the foal the foal of a donkey riding into the crowd and the crowd shouting uh, hosanna hosanna praise the lord here comes jesus and they're cutting down palm branches they're laying down their coats and and, and the pharisees they, they in the crowd they say to jesus teacher rebuke your disciples tell them to be quiet it's not the parade they're worried about it's the words that people are speaking it's what they're saying that that matters because they know that words spread this was the social media of the day when there was no social media it was by directly word of mouth and the word of mouth was spreading and was telling who jesus was and, and the things that he had done and the Pharisees are getting concerned about what's being said. And they says, teacher, tell them to be quiet. Jesus' response, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Which communicates to us that there will be an answer given as to who Jesus is. The very stones would cry out. We, re we read in 1 Peter, one of these disciples that was present in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In your hearts, Yes, know him, revere him, honor him. But then Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. See, the answer that we're to give, Peter even explains and lays it out for us. You don't just have to give this, 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 uh, this sermon about who Jesus is and what he's done for you and, and, and how you too can be saved and walk people through the Roman road to salvation. Peter tells us, be prepared to give an answer for the reason you have hope. I would believe that each one of us who have hope in Jesus Christ could in some small way communicate that to someone else. That's where it begins. It's not meant to be uh, an exegesis or, or, or a five-point study or even a, even a, a doctrinal statement or, or, or a thesis statement you're working on for class. It just has to be an explanation of why we have hope. Then Peter even clarifies it more. Prepare to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. 
for some, we can't give an answer. If we trace the verse far enough, the reason we struggle with our answer is perhaps found at the very end. Because we don't yet have a grasp of the hope we're supposed to have in Jesus Christ. Peter then gives us some qualifiers. Do this with gentleness and respect. Share your hopeful story in a way that's received and not rejected. But it leaves us to this question for each one of us is what would our answer be? If we are presented with such a scenario, how would we respond? We need to, church, always be prepared to engage in spiritual conversation. Now, that spiritual conversation, we'll talk about it in just a moment. Sometimes I think we jump to the very end. So, oh, I don't know how to lead someone to Jesus. That's not what Peter's saying. We're just called simply be prepared to give an answer. These answer opportunities will always look different. But at the heart, we're out of the heart. Our faith and love for Jesus should show up in our daily conversations. And when Jesus shows up in our daily conversations, then they become spiritual. It's a natural, easy thing. Last week, we talked about trusting the Holy Spirit's leading. This week, we're learning that the Holy Spirit is doing all the evaluating for us, all the prep work for us. He's getting others ready to hear our answers. When the Holy Spirit does this work, the interactions that we have then become spiritual. I often have dialogues with others, well, not to spiritualize things. i got to quit saying that, because if I believe the Holy Spirit's at work in my interactions with others, then they're all spiritual. And if God is with me at all times, doesn't that help me be prepared when those moments actually do present themselves? As the Spirit leads and evaluates situations before us, we are then given opportunity to speak into a person's life. And here's the thing, we don't always understand their spiritual level of interest. Here's what I mean by that. And we went through the first part of this series back in the spring. We talked about moving ourselves one degree along this, this evangelism scale. We might find ourselves at a five or a seven, but the challenge was to move one degree warmer, if you will, so we become more concerned about those that are lost. Today, instead of worrying about ourselves, because I believe and I trust that many of you have taken that one degree step, we need to recognize that these spiritual conversations we're asked to engage in is about moving others one degree in their journey. One notch, if you will, along their spectrum of spiritual movement. And there's a lot of illustrations out there that would define this far better than I can. But if you can imagine a, a line, a ruler, if you will, and if you're a disciple of Christ, you're, you're on, on one end of the ruler. And if you don't know who Jesus is, perhaps you completely reject or don't believe in him. You're on the other side there's this journey that you're on. And somewhere in the middle, there's a place where uh, we would identify accepting Jesus Christ as one's Lord and Savior. And then the other side is this you know, discipleship journey. And the other, this pre-Jesus, if you will, uh, you're, you're lost, you don't yet know him. The idea would be each conversation we have moves people along that spectrum as well. God's not asking us to save someone with every conversation we have. Simply to share the hope that we have found in him, to move them along in their spiritual journey. Speak to the different on-ramps that we have, uh, that, that conversations might take on in our lives. They might look different, but God is at work in each one of them. Someone else might be coming behind you that God has prepared, and their story is going to move them a little bit farther, but if we haven't done our part, then the next story might not connect the right dot. We have to realize how important our role is in this process. And yes, it's uncomfortable. That's why it's called dirty work. I want to spend some time in Acts chapter 4 today. And I'm going to go quickly through this because it's an important thing for us to understand and to take away. In Acts chapter 4, we see this encounter with Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, before the religious leaders. If you want to go back to Acts chapter 3, you'll, you'll see where Peter heals the, the crippled beggar. And he goes on and gives a, another message. Those that are kind of watching what's happening, we see people continue to be saved. On this, on this, this first day of Pentecost, the people responded to repentance. We know that thousands were saved. And not only were they saved, Scripture tells us they were saved and they were baptized. Verse 41 of chapter 2, those who accepted this message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. The question remains, how in the world did they baptize 3,000 people? There, there's no river running through Jerusalem at this time. They're at the temple where they're sharing all of this information. Where did they baptize 3,000 people? This was an action. 
And what, what his archaeologists have found is around the Temple Mount, we have what's called mikvahs. A mikvah was an immersion pool that was used for purification. I think it's a very beautiful thing that God kind of repurposed them at, at Pentecost. That was a different type of purification. But before prayer and worship, uh, Jews would come and immerse themselves in a mikvah uh, to become ritually clean. Before they could go into the temple to, to worship and to pray, they had to be clean. So they've got all of these mikvahs that are scattered around the temple. And I believe in that moment, uh, the disciples and the believers used the mikvahs to then begin baptizing. What's curious to me in, in, in Acts chapter 4, and, and what a spectacle that must have been, what a sight that had to be to see, it, it was all of these hundreds of mikvahs and people being baptized. The next day, we see Peter and John uh, kind of called before the Sanhedrin. And it's just a little bit of pre-work. And we get to verses uh, 13. Uh, Peter comes and he gives his answer. They ask Peter, well, wh- wh- by what power and what name did you do this? What, and they're t- not talking about the baptisms. I think dunking 3,000 people would be something that would be noticeable. They're, they're not talking about that. They're talking about what people are saying as a response to this crippled man being healed, which speaks to us of the power of the spoken word. They're not worried about what people saw. They're worried about what people are saying. Because they're saying things that are disturbing, and it tells us that they were greatly disturbed by their teaching and by people proclaiming belief in Jesus, they call Peter and John before them. What power and by what name are you doing this? So then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, we read in verse 8, says to them, and he basically calls them out. If, if, if you're calling me into an account to give an account today for this act of kindness of healing this crippled man, then we've got a deeper conversation we need to have. And Peter goes on to tell them, I'm talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and who God raised from the dead. The man stands before you who's healed in his name, through his power. In verse 13, when they, meaning the Sanhedrin religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John, realized they were unschooled ordinary men. Aren't you glad for that disclaimer? Because that throws the rest of us into this conversation, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is the same group of men that 50 days earlier had hung Christ on the cross. Or 90 days earlier, I'm sorry. 90 days earlier. Now they look at Peter and John and say, wow, something's coming out of this. They looked and they were astonished. And what I love is that they took note and they said nothing. Scripture literally says, verse 14, they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them. There was nothing they could say. Here's where actions and words kind of intersect. The evidence was before them. There there was a crowd of witnesses around them. They can't condemn or criticize or or, or explain it away because right there's the crippled man who's not crippled anymore. But here's what they do tell Peter and John to do. To stop this thing, in verse 17, from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. They've seen the results of it. And yet they're still not turned. See, the Holy Spirit, he recognizes their hearts aren't willing to move along the spectrum. But the religious leaders are worried that others will. So they come up with a simple response. They don't say, stop healing. They don't say stop healing. They don't even say stop baptizing. They just say stop speaking. Verses 18 through 20, then they called them in, Peter and John in, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This was their answer. This was the hope that they had, and they could not keep quiet. They cannot help speak, Peter says. This is a very fun word in the Greek. It's the word can or cannot, depending on on the context in which it's used, but it's the same word, uh, duname. And duname kind of speaks to another word we've used, uh, which speaks to explosion or the power of the Holy Spirit. And and the word duname literally means to be able or with, with power by virtue of one's own ability with additional power and resources to be capable, to be made strong, a certain of uncertain infinity, to be of power. What Peter is saying is we can't help it because of what's inside of us but to speak out loud 
We have to share what we've seen and what we've heard because what's in here can't be contained. We can't help it. I could try to be quiet, but it's coming out anyway. Isn't that good news? Now, church, here's where I struggle in my own life. I've got to be willing to ask myself, can I help from speaking? There's times in my life when I can. When I'm quiet when I shouldn't be. When I don't speak up when I know I'm supposed to. When I don't have an answer when an opportunity presents itself. That's not a God issue in that moment. It's a Brian issue. That's an issue with me and my relationship with him. Because in that moment, I'm not able to respond. That's not God not showing up. That's Brian not showing up. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul writes, We do not sell the word of God for profit as many other people do. But in Christ, we speak the truth before God as messengers of God. It always begins in Christ. As we walk with him, as we come to know him, out of that relationship we speak. Out of that relationship comes truth. We speak truth because what is in us, what is in us always is what comes out. When I don't have an answer to give, here's the convicting part for me this morning. And when I write a message, know that I live the message. When I don't have an answer to give, that's a reflection of what's in me, or rather what's not in me. And that should concern me. That should cause me to pause. I should ask some different questions in that moment. If I'm not willing to give an answer or to speak to those who don't know him, or just to have a spiritual conversation when God presents the opportunity. That's not a God issue, that's a me issue. What's inside of us always comes out. John chapter 9, I'll close with this this morning. <laughs> and there's a lot of fillers here that I'm going to leave out, but in John chapter 9 we see Jesus uh, heal the, the man who was, was this blind man, and this blind man uh, now goes and he's washed himself in the pool of Shiloh and he, he goes home seeing and his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him, but they start asking, isn't this the same man who used to sit here and beg? And, and then the others say, oh no, it just looks like him. No, and, and the man finally says, no, that's me. So they ask, well, how did this happen to you? What, what happened to you? And he goes on to explain to them, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eye, told me to go to Shiloh and wash. And I went and washed and now I can see. He's simply explaining what has happened to him, what he knows to be true. He gets called before the Pharisees. The Pharisees are trying to do everything they can to kind of cover this up, and they, they call him a sinner. They call Jesus a sinner, and they finally turn to the blind man, the one who can now see what a great witness he should be, right? He should have been the one to go to first. What do you have to say about him being Jesus? What do you say about the one who's healed you? And the man says, I, I, I think he's a prophet. Well, they still don't believe him, and they still keep arguing with him, and, and they, they call the man's parents. He says, is this your son? Yes, that's our son. He was he was born blind. Well, how can he now see? They're trying to get to this explanation. They're trying to explain Jesus away. And they can't get to where the point where they can explain him away, so they go back to the blind man a second time. Give glory to God, they said. Well, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> we know this man is a sinner, talking about Jesus. And the blind man simply says this. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know. This morning I was blind. But now I can see. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Church, we often forget the stories that we have and the significance that they carry. We, we want to fill in the blanks with, with these. And, and I think sometimes with the right intention, or maybe it's just an excuse, but it's up to us to figure that part out. We want to get it just right. We don't want to mess up or fall short. We, we want to make sure people here get to know who, who God truly is or get to know the real Jesus and what Jesus means to us. So in, in that fear of not getting it right, we don't say anything. But here's what the blind man teaches us. I don't know whether he is what you say he is, but here's what I do know. This morning I couldn't see, but now I can. That's my story. We don't have to have all the details. We just have to be willing as the Holy Spirit leads us to respond, to give an answer, to speak truth, to be a messenger. We let God figure out all the stuff in between. Instead of pretending, we just acknowledge what we do know, and we let the Holy Spirit fill in the blanks. Honest, reasonable, practical conversation 
They often come out of our hurts, out of our loss, out of our confusions, out of our uncertainties. We just speak to what we know of. Last week, our conversation began with our ears. Today, it continues with our tongues. The truth is, we can't keep quiet. There are spiritual conversations waiting to be had. And I pray today that as the Holy Spirit leads us, when the moment comes, we're asked to give an answer for the hope that we have. It starts to get easier to share with those who need to be moved along on their spiritual journey that they too can discover what it is that we have grabbed hold of. Because we too once were blind, but now we see. I invite you to stand with me. There's a whole lot of other stuff I'm not going to get to today, and that's okay. I think God's given us enough to chew on, enough to ask, enough to kind of think about, enough to respond to. I don't always share what's going on in my life because I want you to know that I have ups and downs like everybody else does. That is why I share. But (laughs) we should always be growing. We should always be learning. We should always be asking. God, what can I do differently? What do you need to work on in me? What do you need to fix? Give God space in your life this week to ask the hard questions. And I pray that we're a little bit closer to being able to give the answer. It comes from those who know him and have hope in him. May our answers help others draw closer to him. We anticipate a harvest that we all find ourselves in the midst of today. Father, thank you. Maybe, Lord, the harvest before us is not others, but it's ourselves today. Maybe the answers, Lord, that we've been asked to give this morning aren't what they should be. That's not a reason, Lord, to be upset, Lord. That's a a beautiful thing that you still reach out to us and draw us close to you. you. You desire to meet with us. I pray today, Lord, you would just continue to show up, prove yourself, speak. Maybe use others in our lives even in this room. Hold us accountable. Draw us closer. But Lord, we can, as people who walk with you, immerse ourselves in you, know the truth that we discover, Lord, through you. Be willing, Lord, to share the hope that we have in you with those who don't yet have it. You know, as complicated as we make it sometimes. May we always be prepared to give an answer. May we not shy away from the spiritual conversations that that your Holy Spirit ordains and prepares for us to have. When those moments come, Lord, help us to be ready. Simply to share what we know, what we've seen, what we've experienced. Then sit back, God, and be amazed at how you connect dots that we could never do on our own. Each one of us here, Lord, this morning is a messenger. Each and every one. I pray, God, we would at least think for a few moments, what message am I sharing? Whether we realize it or not, we do communicate. Whether we use words or whether we don't, we share a message. I pray for boldness. I pray, Lord, that you would push out fear. I pray, Father, that you would renew in us the fire that came when we first accepted you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, as as Jesus said in that triumphal entry, Lord, if we keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I pray not in this church. There'd be no worry of that. But, Lord, we would help others take one step along their journey closer to you. Lord, as they take a step, to realize that we do as well. That the harvest is still at work even in our own hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And God bless you. Go. Be prepared to give an answer. Share the good news. Have a great day.